This morning God calls us to a time of fellowship. So put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy and slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that it may you may grow up into salvation. Genuine love requires putting away attitudes and practices that are harmful. Peter identifies these practices here as deceit, the ill intent designed to harm, and the harming of others by trickery, hypocrisy, making an evil heart show that it's pretend to show that it's good, envy, not thankful for the good of others, and slander, speech that harms. And if you're involved in any of these things this morning, it will be hard for you to long for this pure spiritual milk. And whether we have been saved one minute or 80 years, the call here this morning is to desire the pure milk of God's word and this longing is a longing for God and the courts of the Lord allow the pure spiritual milk to grow us up in the Lord this morning as we listen to the word preached to us taste and see that the Lord is good Come of God, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 8. So we are headed towards Esther. I encourage you to please, on your own, be in study of that book. Um, that's the um, next series that we're going to go to. However, before that time, I wanted to spend a little bit of time with you, sort of um, inspired by, personally inspired by, um, the sermon I preached a couple weeks back more than a couple weeks, on Romans 8, 26 and 27 about the Spirit praying with us. And so, you know, that's, that's one of the many benefits that flow from Christ. And so what I want to do with you is, is just spend a little bit of time looking at um, these benefits that are given to us because of Jesus Christ. I remember as a kid, there was that movie, every saw it, The Price is Right. You guys, I know, I know it's still around. But I was like, I can't even... Who knows? Bob Bark, I don't know who it was. But, but it was the price is right. And at the end, the person who guessed the right prices got this incredible you know, demonstration of what they get as the champion for that day. And there'd be, you know, they'd open up at a new car and, and a vacation and, a, and, and wow. And, and, and each one grew. And that's what you've got in Romans 8. Paul has spent seven chapters describing the glorious salvation we have in Christ. And then in chapter 8, he turns to discussing what is ours in Jesus Christ? What God gives us because of the glorious gospel that, uh, by which we are redeemed. And uh, that's this whole chapter, um, at least through, um, at least most of it. Um, and so what we're going to, in the coming weeks, just walk our way through um, the verses prior to verse 26, 1 through 25, looking at 6 
of the benefits that are ours because of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to look at the first one, and that is there is therefore now no uh, condemnation. This is God's word. Let me invite you to stand with me out of reverence and respect uh, for the reading of God's word. Hear now the words of King Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege that is ours this very moment to come to this climactic um, place in our lives where you speak to us through your word in the context of corporate worship. Lord, we know as you are timeless, before time began, you ordained that this group of people would be assembled on this day in this place to feast upon this passage. Lord, we know there's therefore there's a divine appointment for each and every one of us as we fellowship with you this morning around your word. Feed us richly, we pray. Give us unction and power. Eyes to see, ears to hear, and attentive hearts, we pray unto your glory and praise. Give me grace to preach with fidelity. And Lord, use this for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> the wrath of God is not a popular topic today. Um, In our culture, the emphasis, if there is an emphasis, um, it is on the love of of God. And God, indeed, biblically speaking, is clearly loving. Praise the Lord. But he's also just. And in his justice, that justice translates to wrath and anger on behalf of the one who's in rebellion against God. And so we see this theme throughout Scripture. Jesus Christ one of the two most uh, uh, spoken about topics on the lips of Christ um, in the Bible is, is, is his anger, is his wrath, is hell. We get a taste of it throughout Scripture. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's current. In the end of the age, at the end of the world, we read that God's wrath will be clearly evident um, Um, when we read, speaking of the many on the last day who are in rebellion against God, refused to bow the knee before Christ. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. In fact, it's not just now, it's not just then, but it has been since the fall every moment. This world has been the recipients and has beheld the wrath of God. Psalm, 9, uh, Psalm 711, um, David wrote, God is a righteous judge and a God who has, who has indignation every day. And yet, at this point, there's much misunderstanding. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving and has created a culture, a worldview that even God's people get sucked up into. And that worldview is, is that... Um, <laughs> Uh, they believe, it uh, believes, that as a sovereign and an independent individual, man has the right to be happy, healthy, 
content and satisfied. It's our right. In God's purpose, His existence is to secure that, that right in our lives. We have the right to be happy. We have the right to be wealthy. We have the right to be a content. And when God doesn't give it to us, we have the right to be angry at that being. And so when natural disaster hits, or a bad boss, sickness, the loss of a job, tragedy, and much more, our culture today questions God. And says God's done something wrong. And, 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 this, and, and, and the implication is that He's this, he's this being that if, if we say He's done something wrong, that's going to move Him. And He'll feel sad and sorry. And so He's this hand-wringing God who, who wrings His hand saying, Oh, I'm so sorry, give me a second chance. What a shock is it to die or at the end of the age to discover that while man's anger is finite, temporal, mutable, and unjust, God's anger is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and just. Just. Just because, as you have it in the bullets in there, all men through through Adam, have, we've turned our backs upon God. Because of Adam's sin, all men today professing to be wise became fools, fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for, for, for the creature. Incredible. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. All men are under God's wrath. You ask, who can stand before God? Therefore, based upon these descriptions, Hebrews 10 tells us that it says that the only anticipation the non-believer has on the day that they meet him is a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Brothers and sisters, God is a just God and because he's just, he has anger towards sin and towards those who sin. And based upon this, we might think against this dark black uh, canvas that I've just pointed out to you. You might think, man, how gloomy. And we do say how gloomy. But against this canvas, there is a light, brothers and sisters, a light of, of divine grace and mercy and love and compassion. A divine light which proclaims the glorious truth. Get this, guys. It's possible. For a sinner to stand before this being, this offended being, and not receive condemnation. Did you hear that? Against what we just described, maybe gloomy and heavy to you, it's possible for a sinner to stand before this being and not be uh, condemned. And that is the first point Paul makes in Romans chapter 8, having described what the gospel is, Romans 8, 1 through 4a, he then turns to the first benefit, and that first benefit is no condemnation. This is amazing. So let's dive into this text. Let's walk away through it. First, let's look at the content of that condemnation, or as I have described it here, the benefit described. Let's look at this benefit. Walk with me through it. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word for condemnation is an incredibly strong word in the Bible. Okay, it refers to two separate judicial, what we think is two separate, but it, 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 it has two elements to this condemnation. It involves a verdict of guilty. And that's important if you're taking notes. It's a verdict of guilty, 
and then the punishment of that, from that guilt, which in our case would be death. Okay, so condemnation, we tend to think of a condemnation as the second, as death. And when we read there's therefore no, now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, we are, there's no death for us. Because of Jesus Christ, we're not going to go to hell. And that is glorious and that is true and that's exactly what this word means. But you're selling it short when you don't understand that that word refers to much more than just death. It involves as well the verdict. See, in our courts, we separate into three different phases. The verdict, the sentencing sentencing phase, and then the punishment. But in the Bible, this uh, no condemnation is referencing one act, one reality. And that is a reality that involves a verdict of guilty and a punishment, which in this case would be death. Okay, now would you notice it's negated. But Paul doesn't use the typical word for no, like ooh or ook. Okay, ooks. He uses here uden, which is, um, one, it's in the emphatic uh, position. So Paul is stressing so strongly, uden, condemnation. Okay, no condemnation. But then secondly, would you notice, as this is an adverb, um, of time, it's a negative adverb of time, and therefore carries this word uden no carries the idea of complete cessation. That's important. It, it says complete cessation. Well, you can all, you could translate this as not a single one of any kind. If you're taking notes, write that one down. Not a single one of any kind. Now, what does that refer to? Condemnation. What's condemnation? It's not only death. Not a single a facet of death of any kind. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. That's the first benefit. But secondly, the verdict. That's what we uh, forget. Not a, not, a, not a single one of any kind. What's the verdict? Well, the verdict begins in a law, in a law a situation, a courtroom, where a judge is sitting there listening to the charges, listening to the arguments. And as he listens, what goes through his mind? He begins, perhaps, with a good jurisprudence, thinking innocent before guilty. And as he listens to the case being brought out before him, he starts going, Woo, that's, that's, that's bad. That's, that's bad. I don't think he's guilty yet, but, but hearing that, that's bad. And he was there. That's even worse. Boy, this guy, this guy's not have a lot going for him. And oh my, he did what? Oh, this guy's despicable. He hasn't, he hasn't given a verdict yet. But those are all the thoughts going through that guy's mind that leads him to the end saying, guilty. Do you know what this text says? There's not, well, oh, that does not, none of that occurs in God's mind with no condemnation. Amen. So it's not just, you're not going to die. It's that from this point on, there is never a time in God's mind that he looks upon you and says, oh, that's, that's, you're a horrible person. I can't believe you just did that, Christian. Yeah, you're saved by grace through Christ alone. But l- let me tell you something. I'm displeased with you. Man, if I could, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I'd just wail on you right now. Never. Not a single one of any kind. Not a whiff. Not a scent. Not even one insignificant particle of judgment, of disapproval. Do you get once you're saved by Jesus Christ. That's the idea of no condemnation. And so, brothers and sisters, to be a child of God is, is, is to receive not a single one of any kind 
of either the verdict, the thought of guilt, and or the punishment of guilt. And so the smallest element of condemnation on account of our sin, gone. Not a frown, not a passing thought, or an urge on the part of God to judgment. The thought of punishment, which we uh, just saw as the facet of condemnation, never crosses God's mind when you sin. I'll say it again. The thought of punishment never crosses God's mind when you sin. Why? Because punishment is, is motivated by out of wrath. Discipline is out of love. Does God discipline us? Certainly. But not a thought of punishment. Not moved out of wrath by any stretch of the imagination. Doesn't even enter God's mind when you sin. Brothers and sisters, this is huge. You and I live our Christian lives out. We trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. But there's always this, this sense, this, this, this floating guilt, which is, always follows us like a dark crowd because you and I are performance-driven in our walks with God. And because we're performance-driven, we fall down all the time. And because we fall down, there's this sense of, you know what? Because I did these things yesterday or last week, I've tried to clean up my life. Nevertheless, way down in my, in my mind, there's this element that God still is getting even with me, still needs to get even with me. It's not right between me and God because of what I did last week. Brothers and sisters, look at that text. It's an adverb, negative adverb of time, not a single one of any kind. Does God give you that? Do you understand what the gospel gives? Wow. That's the nuance of this world. Is Paul, now, my question is this. Is Paul teaching here? Is this didactic or is this praise? And the answer is yes. This is didactic. But I'm telling you right now, Romans 8.1 leaves the classroom and enters into the, the temple at this point. Brothers and sisters, do you know what the difference is between doxology and a benediction? A doxology and a benediction. In worship class and seminary, that's a huge stress. Okay? A doxology is an inscription of praise. Jude 24. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with, go, you know, with great joy. To the only God our Savior. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion. dominion. That's praising God. That's not a a benediction. That's doxology. A benediction, on the other hand, is a good word. It's saying, may God be with you. And that's how we close our services, right? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's a benediction. Brothers and sisters, you know what Romans 8 is? This is my word. This is a doxodiction. Okay? This, you can't read this word without, without a sense of excitement. You can't read this sentence. I don't know about you, but when I sat down and started reading it, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You can't read that with a sense of the way it's written, the way it's scripted, the way it sounds makes you go, this is didactic, but this isn't a classroom, a boring classroom. This is the temple where we're praising God. Look what God's given us. That is why this passage, this truth, well, has been described. This verse has been described as the most hopeful promise in the Bible. The most hopeful verse in the Bible. And it's been the the, uh, uh, genesis for how many hymns 
and songs written. I've got a couple in your bulletin. Fanny Crosby, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child and forever I am. Redeemed so happy in Jesus, no language my rapture can tell. I know that the light of his presence with, um, with me doth uh, continually dwell. I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of him all the day long. I sing, for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. Brothers, that's what Romans 8.1 makes us do. It is the temple. Didactic teaching in the context of worship. It's glory be to God. There's that. And therefore now, no condemnation, no thought crosses God's mind. Wow. One of my favorites is from Nicholas Ludwin, Ludwin, whatever, von Zinzendorf. Which includes these lines. Behold, uh, bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved through these I am, from sin, fear, guilt, and shame. Jesus, be endless praise to thee, whose boundless mercy hath for me, for me, a full atonement made, an everlasting ransom paid. Brothers and sisters, this passage is glorious. It's doxology. But it's not just doxology. It's teaching. So it's been a, whatever, whatever I say. Uh, it's glorious. Is that your state at this day? Do, do you hear this and go, wow? Do you hear this and do you hear this, or better yet, knowing the gospel as you do, is that you during the, the week? Do you walk around with that sense of peace that comes from this passage? No condemnation. Hey, all the things I did this past week, I don't, I'm not happy about. But this I know, while I'm not happy about it, and if I told, you know, my, my parents or my friends or whatever, they wouldn't be happy about it. But God witnessed it all, and guess what? No condemnation. Not a thought enters God's mind of, of judgment, of, of, ooh, get out of the way, this bony finger of judgment. None of it. Does that, do, do you walk around, brothers and sisters, um, in the context of what I just said here, um, what do I call it? A doxodiction. Do you walk around? with this doxodiction on your heart, it is well with my soul. You know what? My guess is that you don't. Most of us don't. And the reason why we don't is because we don't understand the implications of this. We hear this and we go, okay, Greg, that's nice. That's nice in church. But is that real? How can that be? Well, the rest of this passage, Paul describes how that can be. He could have stopped at verse 1, but brother and sister, he's not going to stop there. He's going to explain. He's going to give you, that's the, that's, the platform that's the stage but there's an undergird there's something holding up that stage we're going to look at that the first one is the benefit supplied how is this benefit supplied okay what is it that guarantees this benefit i mean is there anything i could do anything that could happen that could stop god from feeling this way towards me having this disposition towards me notice with me verse 2a for the law of the spirit of life in christ jesus has set you free This is a weird way of speaking, so let me walk you through this phrase by phrase. First, for the law, stop there, the law. He's not talking about Ten Commandments. He's talking about a a principle. Okay, in fact, he uses it that way in 723. If you just look up just a couple of verses, but I see a different principle in my members of my body. Waging a war against a principle of my, my mind and making me a prisoner of the principle of sin, okay? It's not capitalized L. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's not talking about the verbal um, declarations of God in his word. He's talking about a principle. You go, what's a principle? What does that mean? Well, brothers and sisters, have you guys heard of the law of thermodynamics? It's a principle, 
Okay, it's not something, it's not a decreed law, but it's, it's something, let's think with me through the laws real, real uh, quickly. Okay, one, energy uh, cannot be created or destroyed. Second one is, is entropy. Third, you can't reach absolute zero on the Kelvin scale. So those are the three laws of thermodynamics. Can those be broken? No. Those are inviolable. The principles built in to the world in which we live. Okay, those are principles. That's what we mean by a principle. When Paul says here, uh, for the law of the Spirit, he's talking about a principle that's inviolable, that cannot be violated. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, we can violate those for a time until the end of the age. We can violate those. But these principles are built into the world, the, the, the fabric the warp and woof, the stitching of the world in which we, we live. And this principle is what? In this case, for the law, the principle of the spirit of life. We could translate that, the principle, uh, loosely, the principle of the spirit who works life in Christ Jesus. That's the principle. That's the principle. There's a principle, brothers and sisters. You've got to understand something here. A principle that is, cannot be violated The Holy Spirit works life. Do you understand that? We're really talking about here what we call in the theology economical trinity. Okay? Each member of the Godhead does something different. Okay? Uh, We have the ontological trinity. They're all one. The economical trinity is each member of the Godhead has had different roles. Okay? God ordained, designed salvation. Jesus Christ secured it, and the Holy Spirit applies it. And the application of the Holy Spirit, you know what the Holy Spirit does? He gives life. He always gives. This is an inviolable principle. The presence of the Spirit of God is not death. You know the word for death is? Condemnation. The Holy Spirit would never work, cannot. It cannot exist. The Holy Spirit's work in, in your life cannot be condemnation. That would be death. The Holy Spirit works life. And it's inviolable principle, just like the laws of thermodynamic. They're, they're, they're not man-made. They are the way it is by God's divine decree. The way it is by the character of the Holy Spirit. He always works life. And because of that, would you notice with me um, the result? Verse 2a, for the, law, the, for the law of the Spirit of life who works life, therefore has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is, the, this is the, the, the two by fours that are holding up this stage. No condemnation is fantastic, but what's it based upon, Paul, God? What's it based upon? It's based upon this incredible working of the Spirit of God who always works life. And in this case, he sets us free from the principle of sin and death. He sets us free from condemnation. What we're talking about here, once again, theologically, is what is known as definitive sanctification. Are you aware of that? You guys heard that? Most of you have heard it. If you've been through Lagos, you've probably heard of definitive sanctification. Definitive sanctification is a doctrine which is a very important part of our salvation, which basically um, is defined as the Spirit of God, when we're saved, affects a moral breach between us and sin. The best passage is Romans 6. You're in Romans. Go back three pages. One page of my book. Go back three chapters. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. We can read the whole chapter, 1 through whatever, 11. But I'm going to read 5 through 7 for time. For if we have become united with Christ in the likeness of his death, 
certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ, that our body of sin might be done away. What's he talking about there? That we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Brothers and sisters, the non-believer cannot do anything else but sin. Because sin has a power. So think of the three P's of, of sin. Sin has a penalty, which is what? Death. You can say it. Sin, its penalty is death. Okay? Its power is to enslave. And its presence is in our fallen humanness. Okay? Well, Jesus Christ dealt with the penalty. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit is, this, is, 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 a, is the, the member of the Godhead whose function is to work life. And you know what he did? He broke, he severed the power that sin had over your life to obey it. Before you're saved, before a person is saved, they can do nothing but sin. For us... We're freed from the power. There's this moral breach. Dr. Raymond, uh, Raymond, my uh, professor, put it this way. You've got the quotes. The doctrine of definitive sanctification does not mean that the Christian actually achieves personally and existentially sinless perfection the moment he trusts Christ. But what it does mean is that every Christian, the moment he becomes a Christian, by virtue of his union with Christ, is instantly uh, constituted a saint and enters into a new relationship with respect to the former reign of sin in his life and with God himself, in which, in which new relationship he ceases to be a slave to sin and becomes a servant of Christ and of God. John Murray added, The decisive and definitive breach with sin that occurs at the inception of, of Christian life is one necessitated by the fact that the death of Christ was decisive and de- and definitive. It is just because we cannot allow for any reversal or repetition of Christ's death on the tree that we cannot allow for any compromise on the doctrine that every believer has died to sin and no longer lives under its dominion. Okay, that's the doctrine of definitive sanctity. That's exactly what's being spoken about here. Do you understand what happened when you were saved? The Spirit of God who works life, the Spirit of God broke the power, the dominion of sin that it held over your life. Do you know why people go to hell? Because they're under sin's dominion. Guess what the Spirit of God did? He broke that dominion. So you could never, ever again have condemnation. You could not die because of Christ, and you could not have any thoughts of judgment, any thoughts of ridicule, any thoughts of, uh, I want to get them on God's part. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in your life, and he works life. And in that context of life, he breached the power that sin had. He broke it, decimated it, such that now we are ones who are now, by the life-giving grace of the Spirit of God, delivered from the dominion of sin. Those, that's the two-by-fours that's undergirding the stage on which Romans 8.1 says no condemnation. How is it that God can never condemn you? How is it that God would never think those thoughts? Because, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit's in your life. Ephesians 1, 13-14, he's, he's literally taken up residence in your temple. And therefore, God could never condemn that in which the Holy Spirit dwells and is working life in. 
couldn't in, a, in, in an infinite amount of years. Ever. Incredible. I love the, the quote of T.W. Manson. I think you got it in your notes. Moses' law has right, but not might. Okay? To follow it perfectly is to, to live. That's, that's uh, yet, it, it, yet no one uh, can do this. So Moses' law has right. If you follow the law, you'll live. But it, it doesn't enable you to do that. On the other hand, sin's law has might, but no right. Sin will c- condemn you. It, it, it'll, that, it'll destroy you. But it doesn't give you the ability to, to, to not be d- destroyed. The law of the Spirit has both right, he leads to life, and might, he enables us uh, to get there. So, brothers and sisters, how is it that you, you and I could never receive condemnation because of the presence of the Spirit of God who is the universal truth, eternal truth, by the Spirit of God works life. Wow. All right, now if that's not enough, if, there, if there's still some lingering doubt, notice the stage has a bedrock. So you got the, the scaffolding that's holding up this stage, but that scaffolding is sitting on something else, and that's verses 3 through 4, the benefit secured. Notice with me verse 3. For what the law could not do, that is, save us, okay, by condemning sin in the flesh. What the law could not do, it can't save us. It would like to save us. The law is beautiful. Weak as it was through the flesh. We'll stop there for a moment. Brothers and sisters, when you hear the word law, whether it's the Ten Commandments or anything, you've got to realize the word law is another word for word. So when you hear law, you know, people have a sense that, well, that's law. Brothers and sisters, the law is the word of God. The, God, the God's word is the law, okay? It contains law. And, and, and so this beautiful, glorious declaration of God's character and his will, brothers and sisters, it cannot save us because it's, pred- it's based upon what? Your and my ability to obey. So therefore, as glorious as this word is, there's nothing wrong with God's word. Romans seven twelve. just look up in your Bible, says this, the law, the word of God is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. There's nothing wrong with God's word. There's nothing, in, there's nothing built into it that's bad. It's that we're bad, we're weak. So, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, would you notice what it says? God did. Sending his own son. This is the foundation. What did God do? Well, he sent his son. And what did his son do? Notice the three qualifying statements. One, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. That tells us two things. This is glorious. One, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Hebrews 2, 14 through uh, 15, right? He, since then children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. That means that he's a merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews 4, 14 through 15, uh, 16, right? 15 through uh, 16. He, we, we, God on the throne of the universe understands what it's like to live in a state of sin and misery in this form. Okay? But secondly, and more importantly, well, but more importantly, secondly, because he was in likeness of sinful flesh, what does that mean? He was born under the covenant of works. He was born under the same stipulation God gave Adam in Galatians 2, 16, or Genesis 2, 16 through 17. He was born under that same stipulation. You have to be perfect to, uh, to walk with me. You've got to be perfect in order to remain with God. And if you're not perfect, you'll be cast out. 
right? Jesus, well, what, what did Adam do? Well, Adam fell. And because he fell, every one of us are born guilty of violating that law. As we've said, people go to hell ultimately not because they break the Ten Commandments, but because they're born as violators of that law. And that law is what damns us. Well, guess what, brothers and sisters? Jesus Christ was born under that law. He was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. He became one of us. And as an offering of sin, notice the next phrase, that word in the Greek, or that phrase in the Greek, is talking about the sin offering. This is how in the Septuagint the sin offering is a reference. Para harmatios. That's exactly what Paul wrote here. Christ came under the covenant of works, came as a man, can, can sympathize with this, but more importantly, born under the original thing that uh, condemns us, the original uh, agreement, he became a sin offering. What's a sin offering? Remember in the Old Testament temple worship, there were three primary offerings. Expiatory offerings dealt with sin. Uh, dedicatory offerings dealt with dedication. And communal offerings dealt with fellowship. Well, there were two such offerings under the expiatory offerings. There's the guilt offering and there's the sin offering. The guilt offering was given when you committed a sin and you knew what that sin was. You could go to the temple and say this, and it was a little bit different of an offering than the sin offering, but you would lay your hands on the head of the sheep, cut its throat, and the whole bit. Well, the sin offering was for unknown sin. Okay, that's what, that's what, that's, I know I'm sin. I, I'm, I'm guilty of legions and legions of sins. But I don't know them all. In fact, this past week or this past day, I, I don't, to my not mind, am not uh, uh, cognizant of any sin. But I want to worship God in the, the a temple. What offering do you choose? The sin offering. Sin offering covers the guilt offering and a whole lot more. Do you remember we talked about that? When you confess your sin, when you became a believer, whether that was in the womb, whatever, or older on, okay? When you confessed your sin, how much sin did God forgive? Answer? All of them, right? He didn't just forgive the ones you knew. He forgave them all. Past, present, future. All of them. That's the sin offering. And the sin offering was where you brought a spotless lamb to the temple gate. The priest then came out and met you. And then they, if you're under the temple, you went to the um, side of the temple where you slayed the, uh, the animals. And the priest handed you the sacrificial knife. And you took that, and actually before you did that, you laid your hands on the top of the head of that sheep, and you confessed sin. And then that knife was given to you, and you cut the throat. You killed that lamb. If it's the Passover lamb, that lamb's been living with you for the last week. Okay? You killed the Passover lamb. You killed that lamb. And then the priest took over. That's the sin offering. And it covers every sin you could ever uh, commit. Known or unknown. That's what Jesus Christ came. In the, he came in the likeness God did. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on the covenant of works as a sin offering. Notice what he did. He condemned, he's using the same word, he condemned sin in the, the flesh. Now what is condemnation? Verdict, execution. Okay, he executed sin in the flesh. He executed your, your sin. Jesus Christ came and he executed your sin. But he did more than that. He not only dealt with your sin, the guilt or, or the, the, the execution of it, the punishment of your sin, but even, any, even the supposition of your sin. Any kind of, wait, 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 could that have been a sin paid for? I'm not sure if that paid for. All of it paid for. Incredible. Brothers and sisters, this is focusing 
on the penalty of sin. So the three P's of sin, the penalty, power, and presence. The second point, the power of sin, the Holy Spirit took care of. The third point, the penalty of sin. What did Jesus Christ do? He condemned sin in the flesh. What was the end? As a result, in order that, verse 4a, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What's the requirement of the law? What is it? The requirement of the law. Perfect obedience. Genesis 2, 15, uh, 16 through 17. If you disobey one time, you're dead. The wage of sin is death. That's the requirement of the law. Galatians 5, 3. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under the obligation to keep the whole law. If you want to relate to God on the basis of performance, what the Genesis 2, 16... 15 or 16 17 does right if you want to relate to God on the basis of your uh, performance which is what our we were born wanting to, to do this and right now even though you're saved everything within you wants to relate to God on the basis of your uh, performance everything if you do relate to God on the basis of your uh, performance then brother and sisters you got to realize you got to do you got to do it all say so, no no I, I'm godly I'm a great Christian if I read the word of God confess my sin go to church don't miss church, you know? And I'm nice, generally nice to, to people, and I don't cuss and swear. If I do those things, I'm a pretty godly person. I mean, every church, our church has these standards that are not biblical, but they make us part of the group, right? So you got to dress a certain way, you got to look a certain way, you got to act a certain way, you got to speak a certain way. And if you do those things, you'll be viewed as godly, and you'll walk away feeling pretty good about yourself. Brothers and sisters, if you submit to that in any form, you are obligated to obey every law. So you can't say, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. <laughs> I mean, look at me. And in terms of Bethel culture, I got it all, baby. I mean, I've learned it and I'm doing it. Yeah, but do you ever sin? Yeah, but they're small things. I mean, I'm doing it. Well, those small things will damn you, Greg. If you want to relate to God and man on the basis of your conduct... Even the small things that you think are no big deal that we don't value here. We don't think it's a big deal here. You know, being late to church, guys, come on, we all get late to church. Not a big deal, you know. Um, you know, eating a little bit too much out there at the fellowship meal, hey, come on, who doesn't eat a little bit too much here and there, you know. But ladies, not ending your sentence with a question mark? You're not submissive. You're a Jezebel, right? I mean, give me a break. Guys, if you submit to any form, you have to submit to all of the forms. So notice what um, Galatians 3. For as many as are the works of law are under curse, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. So notice, brothers and sisters, he condemns sin in the flesh. Why? That the requirement of the law, performance is completely gone. The requirement of the law is completely fulfilled in us by Christ. Look at that last phrase, in us. In us, that means our standing before God right now is that one, we have fulfilled the covenant of works. There's therefore now no condemnation, no thought, no whim in God's mind could ever be negative towards you with regards to your standing before him. But secondly, because of the work of the Holy Spirit who works life in you, who has broken the, the uh, uh, power that the, that that sin had, who works life in you, this principle that can never be altered. Brothers and sisters, because of those two glorious realities, you and I could never be condemned. And what we mean by that is not just the punishment of hell. So we all, coming here, you all would have said that. Oh yeah, that's the punishment of hell. But even 
the prospect of God saying, your performance makes me mad. Your performance let me down. Brothers and sisters, no condemnation. This is freeing. How, you, how can we not leave here this day with a sense of, wait a second, I mean, all that sense of guilt that I've got about those past sins this past week that I've asked God to forgive me now 55,000 times or however many times, this past sin I did this past year, eight months ago, that I've sinned and my spouse won't let me forget it or my children or my parents. You know, I know I'm a bad person. I know I blew it. Please forgive me. Do you understand that you never, ever, ever have to relate to God like that? Amen, brother. Freedom. We are free. And I walks with God to look at the Lord without any guilt. No matter how bad our week's been, to look at Him without a guilt and say, God, my Father, I love you. And He's not up there going, not today I don't. Not at all, brothers and sisters. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. Spafford wrote, My sin, oh, the bless of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but in whole, not in part but in whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord on my soul. I want to begin, I want to end where I began, and there's brothers and sisters. This is, I, I invited you then to, to rejoice with me as we looked at this passage. Let's rejoice together as we leave this passage. Brothers and sisters, the first benefit you and I have in Jesus Christ, no condemnation. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful.